This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Okay, good morning. Good morning. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And uh, I wanted to just... Take a second here and uh, piggyback on the announcements if I could uh, with you this morning and just communicate uh, really my personal enthusiasm uh, for the marriage conference that we're going to be doing and my uh, personal enthusiasm for you not to miss out as, as well. I had a great conversation with Dave Harvey this week on the phone who will be leading uh, our time. Yeah, his wife will be here as well, Kim. If you're unfamiliar, Dave's been here a number of times before, but he wrote this book, When Sinners Say I Do, Discovering the Power of the Gospel for Marriage. And really that subtitle will be a running theme, Discovering the Power of the Gospel for Marriage. And as he described kind of the outline of what he's going to cover in both Friday night and Saturday uh, morning, I think it's material that will really benefit you, whether you're newly married and just trying to figure marriage out, or whether you've been married a lot of years, um, whether your marriage is really struggling and you're at a difficult time right now, uh, or whether you're living in a honeymoon phase right now. Either either way, I think the material he's going to cover will be um, very helpful. He's going to talk some about the purpose of marriage. What is God's design for marriage? Uh, he's going to talk some about uh, what are what what, are the, what is the central problem? What is the root of the challenges in marriage that we all find ourselves in, um, because though our circumstances could be different, uh, the root challenges are often very similar, and the problem is very much the same in most cases, though there can be different expressions of that. He's going to talk about the sexual relationship uh, in marriage. Uh, he's going to talk about mercy in marriage, extending uh, mercy to our spouse as Christ has extended mercy to us, and that's the name of the conference um, uh, the the mercy and the marriage and the uh, marriage and the mercy of God rather. So we're just really looking forward to this. Uh, we're we're making it affordable. It's twenty bucks, uh, but maybe that's not affordable. If you're really tired or unemployed or something like that, let us know uh, because we can. Uh, there's scholarship money available for you, but we certainly just want to encourage you to do whatever you can and invite anybody you know as well. This will be something that would be helpful for uh, anyone. Actually, as he was describing it, I'm not sure it wouldn't even be really beneficial for, for an unbeliever. Um, I mean, there'll be some things that are treated as givens for sure, but, um, but I think it could be eye-opening even for someone who doesn't know the Lord, for sure anyone who does. So... There it is. Hope to see you. You can sign up on the city, and if that's confusing or you're not on the city, see see one of us, and we'll help you do that. Okay, we are in John chapter 3, and we're working our way through this book, and today we really continue, I think in terms of the vibe of this passage, it's really a continuation of what we've covered the last two weeks, because it's surprising Jesus again. Um, It's surprising because here in this narrative, once again, he is acting in a way that does not fit many uh, preconceptions of Jesus. In chapter 2, he is turning water into wine at a wedding. 
uh, and revealing that he is the replacement for the ceremonial law uh, in a very powerful, uh, dramatic miracle that he does. Uh, in the next passage, he is going into the temple courts at Passover and in a demonstration of holy anger, turning over the tables and casting out the money changers and those who are selling animals, revealing that, that the people are presuming upon God and making his house a house of trade. And uh, Jesus is revealing that he is the new temple. Well, in this passage, he is sort of turning tables over again. Not literally, but he is turning over the tables of religion in this passage. And he's revealing very clearly that what is necessary to know God is not religious duty, but is new birth and new faith, new believing. This is what is necessary to know God. Man can't know God on his own efforts by his religious activity. Men and women can only know God through a new birth and through new belief and specifically through new belief in Christ, and that's what he's revealing here. So let's read John 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whatever that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who loves wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light 
so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Lord, this passage communicates to us our need, and so we simply pray back to you. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and open our ears? Would you grant the miracle of new birth to any who've not received that miracle? And would you, O God, open our eyes and ears who have received new birth, that we might be freshly amazed by you, and that we might freshly stand in awe and wonder at what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, reveal your love to us this morning. Reveal your grace and your care to us, we pray, that we might respond in worship and that we might respond with lives changed by you. Lord, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a passage where Jesus is talking about new birth and new belief, and I want to take those two things and talk about them one after the other. The first thing I want to talk about is new birth. And Jesus talks about new birth in a conversation with this guy named Nicodemus. And the first thing we get in this passage are Nicodemus's credentials. Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Jesus is at the Passover, And uh, Nicodemus is there. He comes and visits him at night, it says. He may have not wanted to be seen talking to Jesus. It doesn't really tell us why, but he comes at night. And we know that he is one of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism. They were strict law keepers. And our, our impression of the Pharisees... Uh, is often critical because we've read, if you're a Christian and have read the Gospels, you've read the story and seen how Jesus um, really uh, critiques the Pharisees and corrects the Pharisees. But in their day, that would not have been the case. I mean, in their day, they would have been highly respected as those who uh, sought to obey God's word. So uh, they would have been respected among the Jews. So Nicodemus is a highly respected individual. Not only is he um, a Pharisee, but it says that he as well is a ruler of the Jews. This means he served on the Sanhedrin. There were 70 people that served on the Sanhedrin, and they were responsible for ruling all of Judaism, every Jew on the planet was under their authority. So he's in a small company of people that exercises uh, governance and authority over all Jews on the planet. This is, he is a rare, rare leader. He's not just knowledgeable. He's not just strict with his adherence to the law, but he's a ruler amongst the people. And not only that, but later in the passage, Jesus is incredulous that he doesn't understand what he's talking about. And he says in verse 9, Are you the, and there's a a definite article there, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So many would assume with that language, not a teacher, but the, that he is a prominent, maybe the prominent theologian of his day. So this isn't a regular guy at the Passover. Nicodemus is a full-fledged rock star at Passover. He is a leader. He is a Pharisee. He is a ruler on the Sanhedrin. And he is the theologian or a prominent theologian teacher of the day. So the setup of the story is not Jesus just you know, kick it around with the average guy who's showing up at Passover. This is the guy who comes at night and begins to talk to him. No one at Passover has his spiritual resume, or very few would. 
has his religious status. And Nicodemus very likely is assuming, well, not very likely, he would for sure assume that he has a place in the kingdom. Uh, Nicodemus, as a Jew, would have been circumcised to show he's part of the covenant. Uh, Nicodemus would have a high degree for the law, both knowledge of the law and application and obedience to the law. Nicodemus would have a heritage Um, a Jewish heritage that would be rich. He would have diligent obedience. He has responsibility to lead and govern God's people. So Nicodemus would certainly assume that he is on the inside, not on the outside, that he is a, (coughs) of all people, in the kingdom of God. And so when he addresses Jesus, he addresses Jesus with his knowledge. Notice he doesn't bring Jesus a question. Jesus gives him an answer, but he brings a statement to Jesus. And his statement is, we know. That's where he starts. He starts with his knowledge. We know. Well, actually, he starts with rabbi. He calls Jesus a teacher, even though Jesus is not a trained rabbi. So there is maybe some respect, or we we don't know exactly, but he does refer to him as a teacher. We know. Now, we don't know who the we is. It may be the Sanhedrin, maybe other Jewish leaders. But we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So we know who you are. We know that you're from God. And, and he says, here's how we know. We know because we've observed signs. So is he sincere? Is he here as a genuine follower of Christ who's tracking him down to connect as a disciple? Is he someone who uh, is a, a, a serious believer in Jesus? I think the context indicates he's probably not. Two reasons. Look at the context immediately before this. Nicodemus comes and says, we know that you're from God because of the signs you do. Look at verse 25 in chapter 23 in chapter 2. So Nicodemus is walking out the verses that come before. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. And there was a ruler of the Pharisees who came and said, we know you're of God because we've seen the signs. He's fulfilling what's been said. Jesus is doing signs. People say we believe, but they don't really believe. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows what's in the heart of man. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus will do signs. A crowd will come for a little while as long as food is being served. And then they will disappear when the call of discipleship becomes difficult. So Jesus says he's not entrusting himself, or John says, he's not entrusting himself to people who gather and are impressed with signs, just merely by signs, because many people are drawn, yet they don't really believe. And so so Nicodemus comes, and he is drawn by the signs. He's in the category that's just been spoken of in this passage. The other thing that's interesting is Jesus just, he doesn't cut him off, but he just comes right back at him strongly. We know, and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, not particularly impressed, not particularly interested in what Nicodemus knows and what his fellows have discerned and the conclusions that they have drawn, because Jesus comes back and says, look, um, you I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. This is a way of saying, Nicodemus, you don't know. 
Nicodemus, you have no idea of your need. That's true of all religious people. No idea of your need. As a matter of fact, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless something radical happens to you and you have a rebirth that you are born from above. One commentator, Leon Morris, says, In one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is opposed to Nicodemus at all. He's lovingly communicating with him. Jesus will always respond to those who come and say, we know, with seeking to gut them of their knowledge, to remove the props we stand on of what we know and what we've done so that we will listen to him. We know, I say to you. Listen, is what he's saying. You must be born again. He challenges the sense of knowledge. He removes, Jesus will always remove self-confidence of every sort when people come to him. He wants to remove self-confidence and self-reliance and what we've done and what we know so that we come to the place of desperation where we see we need him alone. Not where we're coming commending ourselves or arriving at conclusions, but where we're coming desperate and saying, teach me, change me, save me. Come to a place where we are listening to him on his terms. See, Nicodemus is hindered by what he knows. What he knows in quotation marks, what he thinks he knows. It's always true of us as religious people that what separates us from God is what we know what we think we know. It's not our ignorance that separates us. It's what we think we know. For religious people, it's not our badness that separates us. It's our goodness that separates us from God. What we think we've done to be right with God. What we think we've come to the conclusion of and what we know on our own and what we've done, we think that makes us right with God. And those are the very things that separate us from God. We know, surely I tell you, Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom of God from where you are. You're not in it. You can't even see it from your vantage point. And this is a message to all of us. If you're here today as a religious person, that is someone who has a religious pedigree, who has a church background, mama raised you in church, you went to youth camp, you prayed a prayer, you went to Sunday school, you you grew up doing all the stuff. I think Jesus would say to you and say to me, would say to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, you think you know, but unless you have experienced new birth from within, unless you have experienced new life, you don't know, and your supposed knowledge is the very thing that separates you from Christ today. Your supposed morality is the very thing that separates you from Christ today. And there's not a, not a few people running around our area who live with this deception, the same deception Nicodemus lives with. And maybe you're one of those today. And Jesus graciously, lovingly addresses you just as he does Nicodemus. Now, he tells Nicodemus and us three things about the new birth. Three things he communicates here. First of all, it's necessary Verse 3, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. So unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this is something that is necessary. What is necessary is new birth, being born again. It can also be translated being born from above. Now, Nicodemus understands it as born again, which is probably why it's translated that way, because he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time? So he understood born again is what's being meant here, but it can mean born again or born from above either way. And he says that you can't see the kingdom, and the second phrase is you can't enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is talked about a lot more in the other three Gospels than it is in John. John doesn't speak as much about the kingdom as the other ones do. But here, it seems that when he speaks about the kingdom of God, he's using it um, as a synonym for eternal life. He's talking about the kingdom of God as the reign of God, and he's talking about the eternal reign of God because he uses... Eternal life. He transitions in this passage to start talking about eternal life. So we're talking about the new birth, and the person who has the new birth sees and enters the kingdom of God. That's the benefit of new birth. You see and enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 15, he says, whoever believes will have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. So the kingdom of God is eternal life. And eternal life in John, in John's gospel, when Jesus talks about eternal life, it's not just something that happens after you die. It's something that starts now. That's why Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. You may have an abundance, a qualitatively different type of life that begins now at spiritual birth and lasts through eternity. And uh, so this is that kind of life. You can't have spiritual life unless you're born. You can't have eternal life unless you're born spiritually into that life, which begins now and goes for eternity and is characterized by the rulership of God. So it's called the kingdom of God, the realm of God, the rulership of God, eternal life. So... That's what he's talking about. Nicodemus, in order to know God, in order to see God, in order to enter his kingdom, in order to live forever, in order to have eternal life, you must have new birth. You cannot rely on your works. You cannot rely on your heritage. You cannot rely on your knowledge. You cannot rely on your morality. You cannot rely on keeping the law. You cannot rely on religious duties. You need to be a new person. You need to to be someone that you're not. You need to have the Spirit of God wake you up that you may see the Savior and believe in Him. So it's necessary. The new birth is necessary. Secondly, the new birth is a supernatural work of God. Nicodemus asks a reasonable question. How can a person be born when they're old? Verse 4. How can a man be born? Can I, I can't get back into my mother's womb. How am I going to be born a second time. And, and it's interesting. Jesus makes a point. If you could, it would make no difference. If you could climb into your mother's womb and be born again, it would make no difference. Why? Because whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. If you were to literally do that, you would still be in the same predicament twice over. You'd just be in the same predicament because whatever is born of flesh is flesh. What you need is a work of God. What you need is a spiritual birth. Now, I think it's interesting. Jesus doesn't pick his, um, 
his word pictures, his metaphors. Jesus didn't pick these haphazardly, randomly. It's telling that the metaphor is birth. The reality is that we had nothing to do with our physical birth. You did not create your physical birth. You showed up. You did not give yourself physical life. You received it as a gift. And the metaphor of birth here that he's talking about, spiritual birth, your physical birth was a work of God, but it's equally true that your spiritual birth is a work of God. The pictures of new life in the Scripture, they're pictures of God working alone in granting them. Think about Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, the picture's a little bit different. He says that, We who were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made alive in Christ, for by grace you are saved, he says. So the picture there is a little bit different. The picture there is resurrection, a dead person being raised up. What dead person can give themselves life? No one. What person can give themselves birth? No one. So it is a work of God that is in view here, a spiritual work of God. Don't be surprised, Nicodemus, he says. You must be, um, verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So something needs needs to happen in a new birth that is being born of water and the Spirit. It is being born of water and the Spirit. Now later, he goes on to say, you know, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus says to him, are you not the teacher of Israel? Don't you get this? Because Jesus is teaching something that's found in the Bible. Jesus is teaching something that's in the Old Testament. He's not revealing something that the teacher of Israel would be clueless of. He's talking about something, being born of water and being born of the Spirit. Uh, this is Old Testament prophetic teaching. And so this is what he draws his attention to. The new birth is being born of water and of the Spirit. What does that mean? Some people say, well, that means water baptism and spiritual baptism. Um, I, I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Some say physical birth and spiritual birth. I'm, I'm not quite sure what physical birth is being born of water, but but that's an idea. So it's a physical birth and then a spiritual birth. But... Anybody Jesus would be talking to would already have that first one covered or he wouldn't be speaking with them. So I'm not not sure Jesus would be saying, you need to be physically born and then you need to be spiritually born because they all are doing really well on number one. It's just number two that is the problem. So what is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about something in the Old Testament because he says you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this new birth thing. Um, He's likely referring to Ezekiel 36. Where, where Ezekiel talks about a cleansing and a spiritual birth. Ezekiel 36, in verse 25 through 27. This is, this is what he says. There it is for you right there. Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Th- this is God speaking about the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. So there's coming a day when I'm going to wash you. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Leave that up just a second, if you would, please, uh, Jason. What he's saying here is 
Ezekiel is saying there's coming a day right now we're relating to God under an old covenant. There's coming a day when everything's going to be new. And what's going to happen is you're going to be washed with water. You're going to be cleansed. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. You're going to be born of water. There's going to be a cleansing that takes place that washes away all your sins. All your uncleanness will be washed with me, by me. And I'm going to give you a new heart, he says, a new spirit within you. My spirit will be within you. This is going to be a different way of relating to God. You're going to change internally. You're going to be washed clean. And from your heart, you're not going to have a heart of stone. You're going to have a heart of flesh. You're going to have a soft heart. My spirit's going to dwell in you. You're going to want to obey God. You're going to want to walk to God with God because my spirit is within you, changing your hearts, your heart and your desire to please him. There's coming a day when in the new covenant, your sins will be all washed away and you're, you'll have a new heart and a new life. You'll be born of water and spirit. Water and spirit coincide in the forgiveness and the new life that comes. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, that day is here. That day is here. Jesus is the Messiah who would come and give his life, be buried, be resurrected on the third day, would pour out the spirit so that people are washed and cleansed by God through faith in him. And people are given new life, a new heart in Jesus Christ. So he's pointing him to the, to the prophetic scriptures and saying the day has dawned. You must be born again. And that comes through Jesus Christ. He reinforces this statement um, again about birth with the, this, uh, this idea that it's a supernatural work of God. When he talks about the wind, he goes on to say, you must be born again, verse 7. You must be born again. Verse 8, the wind, now it's the exact same word for wind and spirit in both Greek and Hebrew. We have two different English words. And you can tell by context which is which. Here he's talking about wind. The wind blows where it wishes, so he's playing off the spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. What is he saying there? He's saying that the new birth is a work of the spirit, And it's a sovereign work of God. It's a picture. He's saying you can't control the wind. The wind blows wherever it wants to blow. And you can't make the wind. You can't create wind. And you can't make the wind blow in a certain direction. The wind blows as it wishes. God is in charge of the direction of the wind. So it is with the Spirit. God sovereignly blows his spirit where he wants and grants new birth. It's a work of God. That's what he's saying. That's the whole picture here. It is the work of God. So Nicodemus, you can't show up with your spiritual resume announcing what you know. You are dependent upon God to grant you new birth. The spirit must grant new birth, and the spirit, the wind, blows where it wishes. 
You must be born again. By the way, it's not a command when he says you must be born again. There's two ways, um, or at least two, that a verb can be expressed. It can be an imperative, which is a command. That's what We have that in our language. An imperative is a command. And a statement of fact is an indicative statement. These are indicative statements. You must be born again is not a command. It's a statement of fact. He's not saying you go be born again because you can do that. He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying the wind blows wherever it wants. God grants the new birth. The statement of fact is you must have the new birth if you're going to see God. He's trying to deplete Nicodemus of his self-sufficiency, of his ability to relate with God, and bring him to the place where he sees it is the work of God that I am in need of, the sovereign spirit. He also makes the point that the new birth can be seen. So it's necessary, it's a miraculous, supernatural work of God, and it is observable. It can be seen. You can know if you've been born again. And he uses, he says that in the same metaphor here, the same picture. The wind blows where it wishes, verse 9, verse 8, I'm sorry. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So maybe you thought, as a person who born from the Spirit, you don't know where they go. They, they go, they're here, they're there. I mean, you may think that's a description of charismatic Christianity, that it's anyone born of the Spirit, you don't know where they are. They're here, they're there. That's really not what he's talking about there. He's not referring to flakiness or something like this, that the person who's really born of the Spirit, whoa, there's no telling. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the Spirit blows where it wishes, and so it is with everyone, and, and you, you can't control it, but you hear it sound, so it is with the person who has spiritual birth. So one of the surprising things about moving to Dallas for me, I grew up in Houston, then sp- spent basically half my life in Houston, the next half of my life, more than the next half of my life, uh, in California, and then came back here. And so I was unprepared for... What happens here in the spring, I mean, what happens here year-round with the wind? I mean, this place is a windy place. I had no idea. Never been in a place that is windy like that. Um, so coming here is just a new way, just kind of a new way of expecting things. Things are just going to blow, bolt them down. But so you can hear. I can hear in my house. I can hear the wind. This morning as I'm preparing this passage, praying about it, thinking about it, uh, you know, preparing to, to be here this morning, I'm hearing the wind whistle outside. I couldn't see it. I can't see the wind. Certainly can't control it. Can't see it, but I can see its effects. I can see the trees blowing. I can hear its effects. I can hear the whistling. And that's what he's saying. The person that's born of the Spirit, you may not know uh, when the person is born. You don't know when that happens, but you'll see the effects. This should bring tremendous comfort to anyone who's doubted their salvation because they don't remember the moment of being born again. Jesus doesn't expect you would remember the moment you were born again necessarily. This is a dangerous teaching that I heard growing up. Uh, At one point, an evangelist say that if you cannot remember the second that you were born again, you're not born again. And so I watched trillions of people get baptized and get saved at that moment so they would know the moment many of which I'm assuming were already Christians, but because of that fear. That's not what Jesus says. You will know the moment. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and the thing is that you'll know the effects of it. See, well, this is, we don't have time for this. this. We're going to talk about this in theology class, but assurance of salvation is not based on a moment that I can recall that I prayed a prayer. Assurance of salvation is, do we see the effects now? 
And assurance of salvation is, first of all, based at looking at Christ and what he's done. That's primary. But secondly, in looking at our own lives, we shouldn't be primarily looking at a moment we walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. We should be looking at, are there effects that the wind is blowing? Can you hear the wind in my life? Is there a desire for the scripture? Is there a desire for worship? Is there a desire for fellowship? Is there a desire to grow? Is there a conviction of sin? This is the sound the wind makes when it's blown into your life and you have new birth. So look for the effects of the wind. Don't strain because you can't remember the exact moment. If you can, that's wonderful. But if you can't, don't allow your assurance to be eroded from something that Jesus wouldn't agree with based on this passage. So you will see that you can, you know it blows, so you'll know, you can know that you have new birth. You can know based on the effects. Well, what's the primary effect? The primary effect is that you believe in Jesus as the Savior because now he's going to shift from the new birth to the new belief. And he's going to talk about faith in Jesus Christ. The primary effect that the Spirit is alive in you will be not that you would say, we know that you're a teacher, Jesus, because that's what Nicodemus says. We know you're a teacher, The primary effect of having the new birth and seeing the kingdom of God is that we'd say, we know that you're God. We know by your revelation that you're the Savior. We know that you're the one sent from God to die as a substitute in our place. We know you're the resurrected one. We know that you're the way, the truth, and the life. We know you are the only answer to the problem of our sin. We know that you take away the wrath of God which is aimed at us. The only way you believe those things is if the Spirit opens your eyes. The Spirit grants you life to believe those things so that you go beyond we know you're a teacher to we know you're the Savior, God in the flesh. The resurrected one. The the one who is alive and granting new life. And he's going to talk about this new belief. It's wonderful how he gets at this. Because he's talking to the teacher of Israel, right? So we're not only going to go Ezekiel 36, but we're going to go Numbers 22. Because he then, in verse 14, gives this illustration. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's talking, here's, what, here's the truth, Nicodemus, is what he's saying. Eternal life comes from this. And he tells this, this is a powerful story in Numbers 22. Very briefly, here's what's happening. God is, is granting the people, uh, his people Israel, favor, and they're going to take a city, destroy the city as they take the land. And on their way, everybody starts complaining. Can you imagine that, the people of God complaining? It's just, that's so Old Testament, right? <clears throat> Not really, because I did it this morning when I walked in. So... Uh, so I'm uh, just complaining. Just all, it wasn't about you at all. But don't, don't worry. It wasn't about you. It was my own problem. But um, just complaining. So they start complaining, and they start saying things like, oh, man, I wish we were in Israel. We, in the word in the ESV, is we loathe the food. Man, that's a word that we don't use enough. Loathe. We loathe this food. Kids, do not say that to your, parent, your mom ever at the dinner table. Ever. So we loathe this food. Here's what God does. He sends fiery serpents to start biting people and killing them. Because rather than saying, God, you're giving us the city, they're complaining and loathing the food. So he says, okay, we'll just kill some of you and see your need. So he sends the, in his holiness, in his holiness, yeah, in his holiness, he sends these snakes 
they start biting people, people start dying. So everybody says to Moses, please pray to God that the snakes will go away and that those of us who are bit won't die. And so God says to Moses, yes, I will have mercy upon them. And so he says, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and hold it up. And everybody who will look at that serpent will be healed of their snake bite or won't get snake bitten. They'll be protected. Everybody will be healed and protected. So what's going on there? Well, he's saying is, I will avert my wrath as the people look over here. The very, the very snakes that are coming and bringing judgment are represented on that pole. And you look at them and you will be healed. And Jesus says, that's about me. Jesus says right here, he says, Nicodemus... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. He's saying, I am like that serpent, that I was put on a cross and I am lifted up. And the judgment, which is not snakes, but the wrath of God for our sins, that judgment is placed on Jesus on the cross. And if you look to Him, the Son of Man, believingly, the judgment of God will go away from you. The deadly snake bite of your own sin, which should cause you to perish eternally, will go away and you'll be forgiven. You'll receive forgiveness. Look on Christ and believe. That's the fruit of someone who is, has the Spirit of God at work in them. They believe in Jesus Christ so that you can have eternal life. And Jesus takes that story and interprets it to the teacher of Israel who would certainly know what he was talking about. And he shifts to belief. Listen, uh, the new belief is eternal life doesn't come by anything other than belief in Jesus, the Son of Man, who is lifted up on a cross, who is buried, and then is also lifted up as he ascends into heaven and makes intercession for us right now. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful illustration. I mean, it's a powerful illustration where the image is even comparing Jesus on the cross to a snake. Ultimately, that's because the snakes were bringing the judgment of God. And Jesus endures the judgment of God on our behalf. New belief, he tells him, Nicodemus, this is what must happen. You must receive new birth and you must believe. You must believe. And he goes on to the most familiar verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes. Now this is startling to the teacher of Israel because here was the view that the Messiah would come and save Israel and judge the Gentiles. And you know what he says? The Messiah has come and he's opened the door and welcoming everyone, anyone who would believe, Jew or Gentile, all kinds of people, all types of people, that God loves the world. God loves people. God gave his son so whoever, Jew or Gentile, would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So he's saying the loving God of the universe gives the son Jesus to express his love, to sacrifice his own son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life, Jew and Gentile. So does Jesus believe that salvation is a gift of God, all of God, the, uh, the spiritual birth? Yes. Does Jesus believe people are responsible to believe? Yes, both. There's a wedding here of the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man. Look what he says in the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved 
through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is saying those who don't know God, those who don't believe in God, those who resist the Son have condemned themselves. They are already condemned. So if you're here as a Christian, your explanation is, God, by His sovereign power, gave me new life. It's the gift of God. Credit God. And should anyone go to hell and stand before God and endure judgment, what He says here is, credit yourself. People are already condemned because they refuse to believe. And by our nature, we refuse to believe. The person who resists God and refuses to believe is condemned. The person who believes receives eternal life by God's grace, by His gift, and credits God and all that. There's absolute mystery in what I just said. I understand that. Tremendous, tremendous mystery. But it's the reality that those of us who know the Lord want to be celebrating the gift of birth that blows sovereignly, the Spirit blew into our hearts sovereignly, like the wind. You cannot control the wind. You cannot control the power of God. But He is a saving God. And He goes on finally to say that the light comes into the world, but people resist the light, verse 19, because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. Christ comes to save, not to condemn. Yet people resist him because they see the light and they want to hold on to, we want to hold on to our own sin. So many people choose their own condemnation and resist his love and his grace. They want to Rather than expose their sin and receive forgiveness in life, they want to protect their sin and stay in the darkness and tragically self-condemn. He who does not believe is condemned already. Write their own sentence over their lives grievously rather than turning and believing in Jesus Christ. This passage makes clear there is no middle ground. There's not multiple types of people I know in a pluralistic age, this sounds narrow and uh, exclusive and, well, you can pick all kinds of adjectives. But the Bible makes it clear there's just two types. There's those who are dead in sin and those who've been born alive in Jesus Christ. There's those who are condemned by their unbelief and who've received life in Christ through belief. There are those who are in the light and there are those who are in the darkness. There are those who believe and those who don't. There's not shades You have been born or you have not. The Spirit of God dwells in you or he does not. Jesus has paid for your sins because you're trusting him to pay for your sins or you're accountable for your own sins with no substitute Savior. There's only two ways. And so if you're here today and you have never believed in Christ, I urge you to believe in Christ. Well, how do I know if I've been born or not? Listen, Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast him out. You, you're the command from God to you. The statement is fact. A fact is you must be born again. But the command of God is believe. You believe in Jesus. You come to Christ. You look to Him as the Savior of your soul. You look to Him as the one who died for sin and asked Him to forgive you and grant you new life. You turn from your sin and turn to Him. That's the calling of Scripture. This other is an explanation of sort of 
what's happening in the background if you are responding. If you're disinterested, then um, I, we appeal to you as well. Repent and become interested. But if you're interested, just know that if you come to Christ, he will never, ever, ever cast you out. He will receive you. If there's one thing that's true in this passage, it's that religious activity will not save you. If someone could get into the kingdom by their religious life, it would be Nicodemus. Later in the New Testament, if there's someone who could get into the kingdom, it would be Paul or Saul by his righteousness. And yet he says, my righteousness is, it's trash. Actually, he says it's worse than that. I can't make myself right with God. I cannot make myself right with God. You and I are saved not by us. We're saved by someone outside of us. We're not saved by getting polished externally, doing better deeds, reading the Bible, going to church, giving money, serving the poor, helping others out. These are not the things that make us right with God because we are dead. What makes us right with God is new life and faith in Jesus Christ where we say, I'm not relying on my good works. I'm relying on his work for me, Jesus Christ. I'm not looking at ways to shoo snakes away. I'm looking up at the pole in the Old Testament. I'm looking there where God told me to look to avert the judgment that is upon me. And here I'm looking at Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected one. It's also worth noting that believing in Christ ultimately is a miracle of new birth. Every time someone is born again, it is a celebration of God's work in their life. And so what that means, what what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, what that means practically is that we should be praying for the Spirit to blow into people's hearts and grant them new birth. Well, I thought it said he blows where the Spirit acts as he wishes. That's true, but God has sovereignly designed that he responds and he acts through and with prayer. So he sovereignly called us to pray, and he acts, and he responds, and he answers prayer. We cannot give our new, ourselves, ourselves new birth. Only God does. So we should be talking to the one who grants new birth and pleading and asking that he grant that to others as we communicate the gospel to them. It's a very, very hopeful endeavor. One guy I read, well, it's the book we're selling at the table, the commentary by Bruce Milne. He says this, The Christian witness, therefore, will inevitably be a person of prayer. The Christian who witnesses, the Christian witness will inevitably be a person of prayer. And churches which engage in evangelism with integrity will inevitably be prayerful churches beseeching God for his intervention to enable dead people to be reborn. That's why we pray. Yes, we should grow in our understanding of the gospel and our presentation of the gospel. Yes, we should grow in apologetics, giving a reason for the faith. Yes, we should grow in serving and loving others. But at the end of the day, it is God who uses the communication of the gospel to grant new new life. It is God who is at work. And that's why it's not us just merely working harder and getting better. It's our praying that God will open hearts and use the means of preaching the gospel, sharing the the gospel, sharing our testimony with other people. The more that we are convinced that the new birth comes from God, the more we will pray. 
the degree to which I pray for the lost to come to Christ and I pray for God to grant them new life, that speaks to what level of faith I have for God to save people versus something else, what level of faith I have for me to persuade them. And then I just work on persuasion techniques. I had training and used it. I'm embarrassed to say. I had training and used it. Where I would share the gospel, they may not get any of it, but at the end, this was the presumptive close. Is there any reason that you can possibly think of that you should not receive and would not receive Jesus right now? Uh, No, not really. Let's pray. Well, I can think of one. You don't believe! I can think of one, you're dead in sin. You, you don't get it. I mean, Nick, he doesn't just come and say, is there any reason? And there's some kind of presumptive, yes, we're to be persuasive in calling people to change, but we don't manipulate them. We cry out for God to grant new life. If you manipulate and talk them into a decision, they will easily be talked out of that decision. God is the one that gives new life that is eternal and not momentary. And so we are desperate from God. And how do we express that desperation? We pray. If you have lost loved ones, pray. Yes, share the, I would not, I'm not saying, you know, share the gospel less or live less holy examples to them or serve and love them less. No, 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 no. More as God leads you. But pray because God is the one that grants new life. Join us on Friday. We spend, as we pray Friday, we're regularly praying for salvation for people. So come and pray with others as well. Join your prayer. Let's be a prayerful church crying out to God that many might receive the new birth, that the wind of God might blow, and that the evidence of his blowing would be people saying, I didn't believe, but now I do. People that say, I hate God, hated God, but now I love him. People say, I didn't care about Jesus. Now I adore him and am living for him and will be in eternity with him. May we see that kind of wind blowing that we hear its effects. He's blowing. He's coming. And the evidence is new life springing up all around. And lastly, I'm over time. Well, lastly, we should marvel at the love of God because we can't appreciate this like we would have in this day. Most of us in the room are Gentiles. I am. And he's included us. God so loved the world. We're loved that he gave his only son. God sent a sacrificial savior and demonstrated his love so that we would not perish. If you're a believer, we walk out of here today saying, We're an object of God's love. Nothing can be said better about your life. God loves you. And he demonstrated that by sending his own son to endure the wrath that was yours, should be yours, to die in our place. How glorious is that love. You're an object of grace today. Doesn't matter. I don't know what's going on in your life, but the best thing that can be said about you is you are an object of God's love, an object of God's grace. Your sins are forgiven. If you are a Christian today, you are forgiven and alive. Nicodemus was not alive at this point. He may have been later. He shows up a couple of extra times, and I think there's hope for old Nicodemus because he's at the burial of Jesus. 
Different people debate, was he, did he become a Christian, did he not? Well, we don't think we know for sure, but he certainly doesn't disappear. He shows up in positive ways twice later in the gospel, we'll see. But you're alive. You're forgiven and you are spiritually alive. And your world may be crumbling, your body may be dying, your circumstances may be caving, but you're alive. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The love of God is all over you. The grace of God saturates you. You're welcomed and accepted to a Father who loves you. There's more hope than you can even imagine laid out for you today. And your circumstances may tell you otherwise, but the Word of God says, God so loved the world that He gave His Son, that if you have believed, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting, eternal life. And that's today, because the gift of God, the Spirit of God, has breathed new life into you. And may He stir that life in us, that we live for His glory, that we pray fervently for those who don't know Him that we cherish His love, that we seek to be faithful witnesses sent by God into a culture of darkness to represent the light with the hope that many will embrace it. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org. 